Turn over to the uh, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Today we're going to be looking uh, once again at John the Baptist and a little bit about his background and who he is. And last week we looked at the whole of chapter uh, 3 and, and mentioned basically some things that, that uh, Christ does for us and that gives us power and other things. And, you can receive that message. Also, if, if you ever miss a Sunday, don't forget um, we have a website and uh, the details are there in the bulletin, I think, and uh, um, you can go on there and listen to the messages. Um, I think it's through uh, Windows Media Player or whatever. We're trying to make that a little more generic so you don't have to have any software on your program or on your uh, computer to do that, but uh, you can listen to the messages there. They're usually up by Tuesday and the outlines are there as well. Um, you know, there's something to be said about someone who is... Uh, great, and if you were to ask you this morning who was the greatest man who ever lived, no doubt you'd probably say the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was a man. As much as he was God, he was still a man. Um, and in the world's eyes, when you stop and you think about greatness, um, we tend to focus on those who are famous, um, those who are wealthy, the influential people. Um, and um, they get there by earning a certain amount of money or um, having a certain degree, academic degrees, whatever. Maybe they're an expert in some field of life um, or they have outstanding athletic ability. Uh, anybody watch that game last night? The Eagles, that was from Pennsylvania, so I was sad they lost, but it was a good game anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, some of these athletes have incredible athletic ability or maybe artistic ability, something along that, that line. Um, maybe you've Great people have worked their way up in the political process or whatever. But there's different ways that the world has uh, ways of discerning who is great. And if you stop and you think about it, everything that I just spoke about is kind of the antithesis of what Jesus Christ was. He was none of those things. Um, he obviously had incredible wisdom and power. He was born, though, in a quite ordinary family. You stop and you think about it. His father was a simple carpenter. And even after he was grown... Jesus didn't own his own business. He wasn't, um, you know, over a herd of cattle or sheep or anything like that. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a tent. The Bible says he had nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20, 8, it says, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I just can't believe that. That the Son of God who was born, brought down to earth, had nowhere to lay his head at night. It makes that pillow at... at, at at sleep time a little, uh, little more comfortable <laughs> when you realize that Jesus Christ had nothing. Uh, he had little, if any, education formally. Um, he held no political office. We know that. There's no artistic, really, accomplishments that he had other than he created the whole world, but that's beside the point. Um, but there's nothing, according to the world, that would say, wow, that guy's just going to be great. And when you stop and you think, if you turn over a couple pages from where you're at, in Matthew, turn over to Matthew chapter 11. I just want you to hear what the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, said about John the Baptist. It's kind of amazing when you stop and you think about it. Remember, this is up to this time. He says, assuredly, in verse 11, Matthew 11, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Just amazing. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
In other words, as Christians, we're even greater than John the Baptist is what he's saying. But when you stop and you think about John the Baptist being greater than Noah, being greater than Abraham, being greater than Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, greater than Moses, Elijah, David, any of the Old Testament men, according to God, he was greater than all the kings and the emperors, the philosophers, the military leaders of the history of that time. And yet, like Jesus, John the Baptist was born very simply. We find the account in Luke. He was born in a simple, obscure family to his father, Zacharias, and one of the many priests who took turns ministering in the temple during that time. His mother, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly tribe of Levi and a descendant of the first high priest Aaron, Luke 1.5 tells us. But there were a lot of descendants like that, so that wasn't anything special back then. Um, that was John's family heritage. Nothing great. When he was grown, probably starting in his teen years, parents, this should give you some comfort. Uh, or maybe you're wishing your teen would do this. I don't know. John the Baptist went to live in the wilderness of Judea, it says. Existing much like a hermit. History tells us he forsook even what little social and economic status he had. And Luke records in 1.15, he says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Even though he's living like a hermit out in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness. And when we look at verses 1 to 6 of Matthew 3, we see kind of a, a little picture of the ministry and life and times of John the Baptist. Um, remember in, verse, or in chapter 1 of Matthew, we really looked at the kingship of Jesus by his birth. He was born to be king. He was descendant from the royal line of David. And we went through all that when we looked at chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we saw by the circumstances surrounding his birth, truly he was the Son of God. There was the Magi who come and visited him. The, the Herod hated him, wanted to kill him. And then God's miraculous protection of this young baby, Jesus, at the time. And now we're shown basically the evidence in chapter 3 of the announcement of this coming king. The announcement of the Messiah. And the greatest man who had yet lived was primarily so because he was a herald. He was an announcer of the Messiah. And he was announcing one who was even greater than him. So his greatness was kind of related to his calling, you might say. Um, and back in, the, in those times, you have to understand, when a king would enter a city or when a king would come in to um, visit a town or anything like that, they would always have a heralder out in front pronouncing his majesty's coming. And they would actually have servants that would prepare the way for the king's entourage to come. And they would make sure that the road, the dirt roadway, was smooth and free of rocks or any obstructions. And if there was potholes, they would fill them. Kind of like you know, the guys at the county, you know what they do. But I'm sure these guys, you know, they, there wasn't some guy standing on a shovel, you know, and three of them, you know, standing there and one guy working. I mean, they were all working hard because they were preparing the way for the king, whoever the king was. And as the group traveled and they'd work along and, and, and this heralder would, when the way was ready and straight and, and smooth, he would announce the king's coming. And that's what John the Baptist, that's what his ministry was. He prepared the way for this great king of God, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. 
Well, let's look at this man. The first, first verse there says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Um, now this is kind of a, it says they're in those days. That kind of serves as a transition, you might say, between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because there's a transition that needs to take place. Um, there's a lot of events that happened in between there, but we don't have record of them. Nearly 30 years have elapsed between Joseph's taking the young Jesus and his mother from Nazareth, or to Nazareth, and the beginning of John's public ministry. 30 years. Just in that little space there between, you know, uh, chapter 2, 23, and chapter 3, verse 1. That's why sometimes when you read the Bible, you have to understand that, you know, there may be time in there that we don't even, we don't even know. It's not just like you're reading a book. And only Luke chapter 2 tells us anything about Jesus' life during that intervening time. But it's kind of brief. It doesn't tell us a whole lot. But first of all, let's look at this guy's name, John the Baptist. It's kind of an odd name. John, the, John, common name, obviously. But Baptist, to be called after what you do, that's, that's kind of interesting. But it was actually common back then. That name, John, is a common Jewish name in the New Testament times. And it means Jehovah or Yahweh is gracious. Uh, the, the title Baptist is just kind of describes what he does. He's, he, it signifies the acts that he performs. He was baptizing people. And, and baptism wasn't foreign to the, the Jews at the time. We talked about last week how when they would have a proselyte come along from another religion or from a pagan religion and they wanted to become Jewish, one thing they required was they would be baptized. And it signified the washing away and, and all their pagan ways and that now they're embraced in their new Jewish faith. But the Jews themselves, those who were born Jewish, thought they had no need for baptism because they thought, we're God's people. What do we need to be baptized for? So here comes John the Baptist. And he has a whole different take on things. And we're going to be looking at what his message was in a few moments. But John's father and his mother, it says in Luke 1, were basically both righteous in the sight of the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children. It's like Sarah before Isaac was conceived. Elizabeth was beyond the child-bearing years. And Luke tells us in, in, in one uh, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 11, that one day John's father was performing his priestly function in the temple. And it says in Luke 1, 11, that an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar in the incense. And the angel proceeded, and you can read that for yourself there in verses 13 to 15 of Luke 1, to tell Zacharias that Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. It's interesting that God named John. These parents didn't come up, oh, you know, what do you think? You know, they didn't have baby books and baby lists of names and all that stuff that we go through today. You know, uh, they just said, hey, you know what? God told us the name is John, so that's what we're going to name you. And it says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. John was named by God himself. and set apart for greatness even before he was conceived. It said that he would be filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's wombs in Luke, and he would turn many back with the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And most significantly, what John was supposed to do is he would go as a forerunner before the Messiah, it says in verse 17 of Luke 1, in the power of Elijah, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So 
So John's own father himself was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he declared that, that John will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you, John, will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. It tells us in, in verses 67 and 76. And the child continued to grow in verse 80, it says, of Luke 1. And it says, and it became strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts until the day his public appearance in Israel. So this is a guy that obviously doesn't seek out the spotlight. <laughs> um, and that was John. That's who he was. His conception was miraculous. He was filled with the spirit before he was even born. He was great in the sight of the Lord, and he was to be the, the, the messenger that goes before the Messiah, announcing, preparing his people for his coming. And Jesus said that, you know what, there's not one that's arisen among you, anyone greater than John the Baptist. And you stop and you think, wow, that's, that's a pretty high standard that Jesus just said. There's no one greater that's arisen among you than John the Baptist. Well, it tells us there in verse 3, that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. He came preaching. And uh, that word's often used as just kind of even the, the arrival of the Magi. The same word came is being used there. And this has the idea of a public appearance of somebody. They're, they're coming to perform some form of task. And for 30 years, both John and Jesus had lived in relative, you might say, obscurity. We don't know a lot about what they've done. But now they come... He comes, John, heralding the Messiah is coming. And the beginning of John's ministry signaled the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what was he doing? He came what? He came preaching. The word means to herald. Um, it's often used as an official duty to proclaim loudly and extensively the, the, the coming of the king, the person that would go before the, the servants who were filling in the potholes, saying, hey, the king's on the way, the king's on the way. Well, that's what this preaching that's what John was doing. He was preaching. He was proclaiming the coming of the Son of God. He also refers that, that same word refers to what the apostles did. They preached. They proclaimed God's word. You know, we're all supposed to preach in some form, in some fashion. We, we think, oh, no, it's just the preacher that comes up here and stands behind a pulpit in a suit and, you know, opens the word of God and whatever preaches. No, we're all called to be uh, messengers of God's good news to a lost and dying world. It's not just preachers. Now, they do it in a formal setting with, you know, hopefully some form of education to back them up or whatever. But for the most part, you know what? We're all called to take God's Word, to understand it, and relate that meaning to others around us. It's heralding the good news of the Gospel. And we're all called to do that. You know, sometimes we, we, we say, well, you know... Uh, we do it with our lives. You know, we don't have to go out and preach with our lips. I think that's a cop-out, frankly. I think you need to do both. I don't want you to go out there and, you know, herald it with your lips if your life is a mess. <laughs> you know, you don't go out and say, oh, yeah, Jesus can fix all your problems when your, your life is full of problems and they're very evident that everybody can see. And you're not allowing God to do the work first in your life. But you know what? If He has done that work and, and, and you are, you know... A, an example of God's grace, you need to take that message not only with your life, but with your lips and go out to the uttermost parts of the world, wherever God takes you, and share the good news of the gospel. John was a, a very humble man. He knew his position and he knew his task. He never sought it out. 
You know, I don't know about you, but if, if somebody told me that I was going to be the announcing the President of the United States, you know, when he gives his next address, somebody called White House calls you up and says, hey, you know, would you mind introducing the President of the United States, you know, at his next uh, address? It's like, wow, okay. I mean, I'm going to get on the phone. I'm going to start calling people. Man, make sure you watch this. I mean, I'm going to be introducing the President of the United States. Can you imagine? What a privilege that would be. Well, John didn't look at it that way. I mean, I'm sure he thought it was a privilege. But he didn't take it upon himself to proclaim this, that he's going to be doing this. He wanted one thing in life, and that was to, to bring all the glory, all the focus, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, as a child, John probably had told, been told many times about this announcement about his birth and his purpose, and, and you know, he's, he never wavered from it. He never compromised. He never tried to gain personal recognition or advantage in any way. Even when he was questioned by the priests and the Levites, who had been sent from Jerusalem to kind of ask about, who, who is this guy? In John 1, verses 19 to 20, he says, you know, I'm not the Christ. He doesn't claim to be somebody he's not. He also denied being Elijah and the prophet. And when they persisted in knowing who he was, here's what he says in verse 23. He says, I'm one crying, a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the Isaiah, the prophet, has spoke. Now, it's interesting because some people say, well, was he Elijah or wasn't he? I mean, some people say he was Elijah and all this stuff. How, how does that mean? Well, the scripture that says he, he came in the power of Elijah means that he was going to have some form of ministry like Elijah. In every Orthodox Passover ceremony, even today, they have a cup that's reserved at the table for Elijah because they still think he's going to show up. At the circumcision of Orthodox Jewish babies, at the, at the, the boy's circumcision, there's a chair placed in the room. It's an empty chair and it's placed there for Elijah because they anticipate Elijah to return. And if Elijah would ever come and sit in the chair or drink from the cup, the Messiah's arrival would be imminent. That's how they, they think. And they, they find that in, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Great and te terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And yet, as he testified himself, John the Baptist said, I'm not literally the resurrected Elijah. That's what they were expecting. That's what the Jews were expecting. Just like when, they, when the Messiah was born, what were they expecting? They were expecting somebody to come in and, and take over Rome and, and kick, those, kick them out and, and just rule. With an, well, that didn't happen. That wasn't what it was all about. Jesus came as a savior first. He'll come as judge, but he's not come as judge yet. He, he'll come... He came as Savior first. They couldn't understand that. And John or Luke one seventeen says that he will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It was a common understanding back then that that's that's just basically what would happen. And so here's John the Baptist in the power and spirit of Elijah on scene, and he begins to basically share. God's message with the people. Now you look at the message that he shared, 
It's not a very politically correct message, you might say. It's not a message that makes, gives you the form of uh, some you know, warm fuzzies down in your heart. And oh, he, that's such a nice... Look at what he says in verse 2. Here's what his message is. Repent. Repent. One word signifies his message. Repent. And it means more than just regret. It means more than just showing some sorrow. You know, a lot of people, they'll come to God and say, oh, I'm sorry for my sins. Well, you know what? That's not enough. You don't hear this enough, but that's not enough. It's not good enough for you just to be sorry for your sins. I mean, you should be sorry for your sins, but that's not enough. The, the Word of God says that you have to repent. Well, what does that mean? It means a change of, of mind, a change of direction, a change of heart, a change of the mind and the will. In other words, I'm going this way and now all of a sudden God has touched my life in a way that I see my own sinfulness before a holy God and I realize I can't do it anymore. I need to turn and, and go in His direction. See, before we come to Christ, really we're running from God. We don't know it sometimes. We may even be religious and we wrap all of our stuff in religious cloaks and, and think that we're very religious people and you know we're this and we're that. We start naming denominations. Oh, I was born this or I was born that. Some of you sharing yesterday at the men's breakfast, they were at a service and they were talking about somebody and they said, yeah, you know, uh, this person, he, he, was, he was born a Catholic and he died a Catholic. And I thought, wow. Does that really matter? I don't think God cares, to be honest with you. You know, I was born at Grace Bible Church and I'll, I, I died going to God. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. We make the biggest things out of the silliest things sometimes. I'm sure God's up there just going, give me a break. You, know, you really think that that matters? What matters is where your heart is. What matters is what you do with His Son, Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who, how good you clean yourself up or how many good works you think you're doing. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times you do family devotion or family altar, whatever you want to call it, a week with your family and you, know, you think you're so spiritual. And everything. That doesn't matter. What matters is the condition of your heart. Because you know what? You can do all those things. You can come to church week after week, Wednesday night, week after week, get in a small... You can do lots of things. You can even minister... In God's name. And you know what? It can all be done in the flesh. You know why I know that? Because I've done it. I've done it. It's very easy to do that. It's very easy to give into the flesh and just do whatever you want to do. The way you want to do it. And God taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, you know what? You're out in left field here. What are you doing? I don't want you doing these things. I called you to do this. Why are you doing this? And we, that's a question we all need to stop and ask ourselves. And for the Jews of the day, that's the way they were. They went to temple, they did all their stuff, they had all this religion in their life. See, the difference between religion and Christianity is, is basically, we, we talked about this before, but you know, somebody asks me if I'm religious, I say, absolutely not. And they look at me and go, what do you mean? And I think religion is basically man's attempt to reach out to a holy God what it is. He's got world religions. So what are they all trying to do? They're trying to please their deity somehow. Whereas with Christianity, basically Jesus came on the scene and said, that stuff doesn't matter. 
You, you have to put your faith, your trust in, in what I have done for you. Somebody asks you, what's the difference between religion and Christianity? Use this illustration. Religion is spelled basically like this, D-O. It's what you do. That's what matters. You go to any religious organization and you ask them, how do I get into this religion? They'll say, well, here's what you got to do. And they'll give you a book or they'll give you a handbook or something, ten things that you have to do in order to please their you know, higher-ups and their God. But when you come to Christ, the way that we describe Christianity, it's D-O-N-E, what was done for you. You just come to Christ and you admit your sinfulness and then you take His righteousness upon you. God allows that transaction to take place. It's not something that we perform. You can't wake up one day and say, you know what, today I think I'm just going to become a Christian. Just for the, I'm just going to do it. Well, what do Christians do? And you start going through it. That's very dangerous. That's why it's so important for the church. Churches nowadays, you know, we're really called to protect the church. We're called to protect the flock. Because you know what? There's a lot of people out there that are floating around that want to come in and be part of, of a flock of believers. And you know what? They're not believers themselves. But they want all the privileges and they want all that goes along with it. And so they figure out, well, how do I do it? Well, I've got to talk like a Christian. Let's see, it's probably not a good thing to, to smoke you know, a cigarette out in front of the, 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 the lobby here because then they probably think that, well, most people don't. Other, Christians don't do that kind of stuff. So then, you know, or, you, know you, you, don't, you don't walk out of here into the, into the foyer out here and, you know, pull out a little flask of, of vodka and start guzzling it. You wouldn't do that in church. I mean, there's things that you know not to do. It's a learned behavior. That's why it's so important when we're raising our children that we don't just raise them up and say, okay, here's how a Christian acts and, and here's what you do. If you do these things, God will love you more. You know, a child has to understand, you know what? They're sinners. And they need the grace of God just like anybody else. They need to understand that they too need to repent. They need to have a change of mind. That's why I am so leery sometimes when... You know, and I'm not saying it can't happen because look at John the Baptist. I mean, God touched him in the mother's womb. But, you know, uh, sometimes parents say, oh, yeah, little Johnny, you know, he accepted the Lord when he was, you know, 18 months old. You know, just da, 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 pray the prayer, you know. It's like, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't even understand what's going on. How could he possibly repent? How could he possibly put the gospel together? You know, we have to allow God to do that work in people's hearts. And it means a change. It means you're going the wrong way and you need to, to change. One commentator put it this way, wherever this Greek word, speaking of repent, is used in the New Testament, it's the reference in changing the mind and the purpose from sin to holiness. I like that. All of a sudden, when you're not in Christ, your purpose and your plan and your path, they, they lead to sin. That's what you're doing. Even your good works. The Bible says there is filthy rags before a holy God outside of Christ. And God changes your mind and your attitude and all of a sudden everything changes. Your focus changes from sin to holiness. And all of a sudden the purpose in your life becomes that, you know what, I want to become more like Christ. I want to be more holy on a daily basis. Are you more holy now than you were last year at this time? That's a good question to ask. Are you more mature in Christ today than you were last year at this time? Have you seen God bring people to the Lord that you've been praying for on your list 
And you can look back a year ago and say, man, I never thought that person would come to Christ, but I persevered, I shared the Christ with them, and I continue to pray, and now they're a Christian. What a glorious thing. But it all starts with the message. The message is, you know what, we need a change of mind. See, because you can't repent if you don't think you're going the wrong way. <laughs> That's why today when we share the gospel with people, we have to be careful. Because when people are going the wrong way, you don't want to make them think that they're still on the good path. So when you go to them and say, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, what does that tell them? Hey, doing all right. No, they don't need to hear that. They need to hear, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> You're headed toward hell. You know, there, there's, there's sin in your life. It's clearly there. And you need to be sorrowful for your sin, but it also leads to a change of one's thinking and desire and conduct of life. It, it transforms the person. And God grants us that repentance. It's not something you just conjure up. It's not like you go home today, oh, I'm just thinking I'm going to repent now. God does that work in somebody's heart. That's why we pray for unbelievers. Pray for opportunities to share the truth with them, sure. But you know what? You can share the truth with somebody all day long. If God's not doing a work in their heart, you know what? They're not going to repent. They're not going to. We've bought into this theology that, that helps us believe somehow that somehow we can talk people into the kingdom of God. If we're good enough, if we have enough apologetic books and we have enough little prayers that we make them say and all this silliness. You don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. You see people sharing the gospel plainly and clearly. You're on the wrong path. You need to change direction. That's what John's message was. You need to repent. Turn over to 2 Corinthians real quick with me, chapter 7. Look at what he's, he's, he's writing here regarding their repentance. And in verse 8 he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, in other words, Oh, I made you feel bad because I wrote you a harsh letter because you weren't doing the right thing. He says, I don't regret it. Though I, I did regret it. <laughs> For I perceive, look at what he says, the same epistle that made you sorry, though only for a while. It's not good enough just to be sorry. And then he says in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, what? led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to what? Salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What's he saying? It's not good enough to be sorry. You have to have a change of heart. And John's command here to repent, really, you could almost say that he was saying, be converted. <laughs> he was saying, you know what, there's one coming and you better change your direction and follow his. John's message of the preparation for the coming of the king was conversion. It was repentance. A demand for a completely different lifestyle. And that must have been startling news for the Jews of the day. If you stop and you think about it, here they are dressed up in all their stuff and they're saying, hey, we're children of Abraham. 
You know, we're people of the covenant, the chosen people, the children of Abraham. We're assured of the promised king. What are you talking about, John? We need to change our direction. It says at one point, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. Verse 9 there. I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, God wasn't interested in his people's human heritage, but in their spiritual life. And that's what the king wants from us. And that's what John was trying to communicate. It's not, it doesn't matter about all the stuff you're doing. Have you made that complete turnaround in your life from the way that you were to the way that God wants you to be? Have you been converted? Have your life changed? Are you just going on monotonous every week? You know, the same old stuff. Or do you see the power of God evidenced in your life in a way that only He can? Has He opened your eyes to His Word in a way that only He can? Has He given you that joy in your heart in a way that only He can? That freedom from the burden, the guilt of sin that once just, you know, punished your soul day after day. All of a sudden, you're free from that. Why? Because God has taken it away because of His grace. The Jews of the day heard that message and they said, you've got to be out of your mind, John. You want us, the religious leaders of the day, to change? See, God calls for a radical change, beloved. He calls for a transformation. It's not an assimilation. It's not, how do you become like a Christian? That's not how it works. And yet, I'm fearful that churches all over the country... That's their process. They want to take non-believers and, and make them feel comfortable in the company of believers. And so everything changes. The message changes. The music changes. And it all becomes like the world so that the world can come into the church and sit there Sunday after Sunday and have nice little social programs and things for the kids and all sorts of things. And yet half the church is still going to hell. And nobody's able to say, hey, wait a minute. Have you been converted? Have you, because we don't want to offend. We don't want to bring up the idea that Christ died on a cross and He shed His blood. Oh, that's a no-no word in a lot of churches. You can't say the word blood or sin or hell. That would offend too many people. And we want people to come back next week so we can meet our budget and, you know, keep the programs going. Got to feed the monster that we've created. It's sad, but it's so true. I think God calls us to a simple faith, a simple church. Not something that's complicated. I know that there's probably folks here that, that have needs that are not being met by this church. I got a message for you. We're not here to meet your needs. Sorry. We're not here to meet your needs. We could never even dream of meeting the many needs that are even present in this room this morning. We're not called to do that. We're called here to preach the Word of God, to allow for an assembling of believers to come together, to minister to one another, hopefully to be built up in their faith so they can go and preach the Word, the Gospel, the life-saving message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world so we can see people converted for Christ. That's what matters. Not how many programs we have on the calendar. Not how many things that we've got going on. I, you know... I mean, it may sound kind of crazy, but as elders, as we've been praying, you know, we're looking at simplifying things. We don't want to make things complicated here. And we're going to be talking about that as we get away this next week, and then we'll be sharing that 
with you in the coming weeks. But what if we were to say to you, you know what? Here's what Grace Bible Church is about. Here's what it's about. It's about experiencing grace, first of all, right here on Sunday mornings in a worship service with God. That's the first level. It's about experiencing grace with God. This is the, the first step of our process, you might say. Pretty simple. You're all here. Most Christians go to church on Sunday. That's just kind of a given. So that's not doesn't raise the bar very much. But then we say we don't only want to experience grace with God here in a corporate worship service, but we do want to experience grace with others. We want to give you opportunities to gather together in groups of people and experience God's grace as you interact with each other, i.e. community groups, small groups, whatever you want to call them. Names, you know, it doesn't matter. But it's the idea of taking segments of this population here this morning and breaking them up sometime throughout the week or throughout the month, whatever the schedule allows, and saying, now, you know what, we've got ten people that we're going to get together with. And we're going to experience God's grace with each other as we get to know each other, as we get to know each other's family, as we pray for each other's needs, as we worship together in this little community. In the last phase, the last step, there's only three. <laughs> Just three. First of all, you experience God's grace here on a Sunday. Come worship together. Then you get plugged into a community group and you experience God's grace with others. I mean, this is biblical stuff. It's right out of the, the book of Acts. And then, third level is you want to experience grace to the world. You want to experience God's grace somehow in your life in service to others. That's through what we might call ministry teams. It could be a ministry team that deals with the finances of the church. It could be a ministry team that deals with youth, children, with whatever. We don't have any right now other than worship and, and women. Basically, those are the two ministry teams I think that we have in place. I'm probably missing one, so don't be offended if I am. But that's it. It's kind of simple. And you know what? As we've been praying through this, I thank God that it's simple. I thank God that I'm not looking at a church calendar that's, that's weighed down with program after program after program, and we have to start cutting stuff away. And when you start cutting things away, then people get offended. Oh, you took my ministry away. How dare you? You know, I, I want to create a body here that's very simple. All right? Come to church on Sunday, get plugged into the youth or a, a small group somewhere, and you know what? And you're serving somewhere within the body. That's it. Anything else is up to you. And I think that as we see John's message of one of being simple, it's one of repentance, it's one of a change of mind. That should be our message. And, and that calls for fruit in people's lives. We have to be careful that we don't compromise so much that we become just like the world. It's happening all over the place. If you don't believe me, go visit some churches. Well, what was John's motive here? We saw the man, the message. Look at the motive. He says, repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Pretty simple. What does that talk about? It talks about everything that has to do with God. For 400 years, beloved, the people of Israel didn't hear anything from God. There's a gap of 400 years here. And all of a sudden, 
God raises up John and he comes on the, the scene as God's prophet. John the Baptist and says, hey, you know what? You need to repent. <laughs> you need to change the way you're doing things. Because he's going to make straight the path for the Messiah. See, the Messiah was their Messiah. The King was their King. The Savior was their Savior. That's how the Jewish mindset looked at it. And so all of a sudden, they, they began to believe that every Jew was destined for the kingdom. And every Gentile was excluded. That's just the way it was. It was that black and white to them. Except for those maybe who converted through baptism and, and they, they became you know, Jewish proselytes there. But for the most part, that's the way the Jewish mind looked at it. And when John came and said, hey, this is open to everybody, all you've got to do is repent, it blew their mind. He proclaimed no kingdom but God's kingdom and no preparations but God's preparation. He didn't say, oh, you have to do this and you have to go through these hoops. He just said, you know what, you have to repent. You have to come to Christ. You have to be converted. And you know what? John's message wouldn't change because God's standard doesn't change. Even if every Jew were excluded and every Gentile saved, God would not change this message. God knew that some Jews would be saved. But you know what? They're never saved apart from personal repentance and conversion. They don't just get a pass because they're Jewish. The kingdom of heaven is basically what we have to look forward to when we come to Christ. We need to remember that. That when we preach the gospel to someone, there's a purpose, there's a, there's a plan here. God has His hand in this. We're not just out there, you know, throwing tracks out of helicopters just to say, oh, we, 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 we gave out some tracks today or we shared the gospel message. No, hopefully it's a personal thing. It's somebody you're praying for. It's a, it's a burden that God has put on your heart for somebody. Maybe it's a family member. But the message needs to be one of repentance. And his mission was kind of, kind of crazy. He says he's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He did everything within his power, I believe John did, to create this way. And it wasn't just any way. It was a way of repentance. It was a way of conversion. The call of John's voice was one crying in the wilderness, it says. And it has the idea that there's an urgency, there's a passion, and he's commanding people to repent. You know, he's not going up to somebody, you know, he's commanding, he's 